The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome, everyone. Special welcome to anybody who is here for the first time tonight. Feel free to come up and check in with me afterward if you have any questions about the center or any of the leaders around that you see. We've been looking at this list of qualities, the beautiful qualities, or sometimes called the perfections of the heart. And those of you who've been coming to these talks know that this is a set of qualities that are said to be fully developed in somebody who's free or awake or liberated or enlightened. So those qualities, these are the kind of qualities any of us could probably think of. There's wisdom, which we're talking about now, but earlier we talked about generosity, sort of the absence of stinginess. We talked about sila, this great integrity or commitment to non-harming. We talked about renunciation as a joy, not like a burden, I need to let go, but really finding that movement towards simplicity as a release or a relief. How nice it is, like if we're obsessing about something, how nice it is to put that down. Ah, I don't need to obsess anymore. So that's the joy of renunciation. So the fourth is wisdom that I mentioned already. There's energy, there's truthfulness, there's resoluteness, there's patience, equanimity, and loving-kindness. So these are called the parmis, the ten perfections of the heart, or the ten beautiful qualities of the heart. And as Sylvia Borstein, um, who some of you are reading her book along with this series of talks, we're taking a good part of a year to go through all these qualities. And if you want more support, you can get a hold of Sylvia's book, Pay Attention for Goodness Sake, Practicing the Perfections of the Heart, the Buddhist Path of Kindness, and then there's another book, that one you have to buy or get out of a library, but this other book you can download, it's written by a Buddhist monk, Ajahn Sushito, he's a British Buddhist monk, teaches a lot in the West, um, has been an abbot of Chithurst, a Buddhist monastery in England for a long, long time, one of the senior Western monks, and his book is Parami, Ways to Cross Life's Flood. And that you can download for free, put it on your e-reader or just print your own version or read it on your computer. If you have trouble finding either of those books, you can just contact the center and we'll, somebody on our staff will help you find a book. And so we're now looking, as I mentioned, on, at wisdom and this is the third talk on wisdom. Last week I talked about the sequence of wisdom that we all know, you might not have thought about it this way, but in terms of actually becoming a wiser person, there's always this, this process where kind of just stumbling along in life, basically acting out our habits. Some of those habits may be relatively skillful, some may not be skillful at all. And then we bump into some new information. We pick up a book or you come for a talk or you talk to a friend who in that moment has some wisdom and they share it with you. Now on this level, that first sort of receiving of wisdom is just on a conceptual level. Somebody's telling you, you know what? Everything changes. 
Right? Just something simple or, you know what, attachment never works. Or, you know what, being stingy never leads to happiness. Right? So you get a little bit of information and for whatever reason you pick it up. Like, oh, that's interesting. That sounds right, conceptually speaking, intellectually speaking. That sounds right. And so now in a sense you own it because you've memorized it. It's like, I'm not going to forget that. Being stingy doesn't help, you know. So it's not just like we learned in kindergarten, you should share. So it's like, but now we really get it. Oh, yeah, living in that more generous way is relaxing and living in a stingy way is tight. Okay, so now we have it conceptually. It makes sense. It's rational. And so on that level, there's a little faith. Like, that makes sense. Enough faith that we're actually going to begin to reflect on that particular concept or idea. And so then as we're going about our life, you know, and we see somebody at the co-op and we're talking to them, and then the thought comes, you know, generosity leads to happiness, dinginess leads to unhappiness. And then we, just that frame, that intellectual idea of generosity, then we, we reflect on it in terms of having a conversation with another person. Well, what would it look like to be very generous in my conversation? Like, what would that generosity of the heart, how would that feel and look like? Or am I being stingy with my time? Like, most of what I'm doing now in this conversation is finding my way out of it. You know, that's, isn't that true that sometimes when we're talking, mostly we're like, how am I going to get out of this in a way that, you know, isn't embarrassing or doesn't hurt this person's feeling, feelings? But how, like, as long as we're going to be in the conversation, how can we really be in it, really show up? And how can we see that, experience that, experience that as an act of generosity? And really feel the happiness, the release of stinginess that comes. Because as long as I'm in a conversation, to not want to be in it or to want to be out of it, that's not happiness. That's suffering. So sometimes I'll even say, like just using that example, you know, we could say, I only have 10 minutes or I only have five minutes. So you're basically saying, I'm really here for you for five minutes. And then I got to go. And I'm not going to be embarrassed about having to go. I'm not going to be tight about it because that's just how it is. But until then, I'm 100% here. I'm not, I'm not trying to figure out how to leave in five minutes. I'm really here for five minutes. And then I'm going to leave. So there's always a way, with any of these ten qualities, there's always a way to practice it. Like in what moment of your life would be like inappropriate to be reflecting on what wisdom, like how wisdom looks in this moment or how this commitment to truthfulness looks in this moment or this commitment to renunciation, the joy of letting go. What would that look like in this moment? So any of these 10 qualities that we're going to be studying, you can reflect. And that's the second part of wisdom. So last week I talked, you need new information. Otherwise, we just keep doing what we've always done. We get the same results. And then with that wisdom, that's not enough just to hear it and memorize it, but we then regurgitate, we bring it up, and we see how it illuminates or changes how we understand the moment, how we can participate or engage the moment. It's different now with this particular frame, this particular idea that we've brought up. 
And then we do that enough, like when I'm in the moment and I'm holding and seeing and experiencing through the lens of wisdom or generosity or renunciation, then what I understand, the sort of data I get, the experience I know, is new. It's like new because it's being, it's coming out of that particular frame. And with enough of that new data, we get these seismic shifts in our understanding. We call them insights. Saida Utejaniya, this Burmese teacher, says, insight is always surprising. That's a good telltale sign, like, have I had any insight in my life? Where it's when there's this little or big seismic shift in understanding, and when it happens, it's always surprising. Even though intellectually you might have expected it, like you might expect that everything's impermanent because intellectually it makes sense. Like this is a process thing, this life. It's just an ongoing process, one thing leading to another. But when we actually get that, the truth of that directly, immediately, it's shocking. Because even though we sort of intellectually know it's true, we don't live as if it's true. We live as if it's me here with the idea that it's an all unfolding process. But that's not actually our experience. Our experience is that it's me having this idea, which is not the same as seeing the fluid, impermanent, changing nature, ungraspable nature of our mind-body experience. So that's the third part of wisdom. The first part is we get new information and it's relevant enough that we're going to pick it up. We're, in a sense, memorize it or we're going to hold on. And then the second part is we're going to actively reflect, hold the theme in mind. And the third part is, in doing that second part, the data, the experiencing that's being known, eventually over, overwhelms wrong view or our fixed notions about things like that things are permanent, or that I am apart from everything else. It's me and everything else. That's a very common, mostly unconscious view that we live with. You know, there's me having a, having a life, or me at common ground, or me walking away from common ground, or me wondering why I'm here. But that sense of separation can be challenged by reflecting on the impermanent, uh, the impermanent and impersonal nature of experience. And the more we see through that lens, eventually that opens up, like the, imp- the actual experience of impersonal nature, that everything's happening on its own, just sort of appears in the mind. And the mind's surprised. Even though you've been aiming in that direction for months, years, when the insight comes... It's shocking, like, oh my God, it's actually true. You know, what the Buddha said is actually true. And if you talk to people who've been practicing for a while and have had powerful seismic shifts in understanding in their practice, they'll confirm this. It's always shocking and surprising when the mind learns something that we've been thinking about for a long time, but now experiences it in a direct and immediate way. And then the view, the going forward view, is now has shifted. And there's no going back. 
tranquility can come and go. You know, you might have a peaceful sit and get really stable and calm and peaceful. And then you go back in the world and somebody says something to you and you lose that samadhi, you lose that stability of mind or tranquility. But insight's a little different. It's like um, a space opening up in the mind, a space of non-clinging or non-reactivity begins to dawn or open up in the mind and it's not so easy to lose the effect of that insight. So insight, these seismic shifts that I'm talking about, this third kind of wisdom, it's much more stable than getting really peaceful and tranquil and calm and then losing it and then getting calm again and losing it. That can, you know, that can happen all move all over the place. So there's a systematic development. And in the Buddhist tradition, you might have gotten this already, but sort of nudgy, especially the later traditions or the in the centuries immediately after the life of the Buddha. So the Buddha died 2,500 years ago. So in the few centuries after, they systematized a lot of the teachings of the Buddha. And so like basically every concept got systematized. Same with wisdom as a concept. Panya is the Pali word for wisdom. And so they say that wisdom's characteristic, like what is wisdom? Well, in a way, generally wisdom is about seeing the way things are. And it's the sort of fundamental characteristic is this active quality of awareness, right? Or a, you could say a, a penetrating or a discerning quality of awareness. Because sometimes, and it's true, there is a more passive, like just then, just the knowing in the mind is somewhat passive. I often say to people in terms of understanding mindfulness, like, if you check right now, you don't need to make a personal effort to hear my voice. The hearing of my voice or the seeing of the visual experience right now, if your eyes are open, that happens whether or not you're trying to see or trying to hear or try, even trying to comprehend the meaning of the words you're hearing. Even the com- comprehending, that cognitive process of understanding the meaning of the words isn't that all happening effortlessly, right? So they're in this uh, great balance of mind that we're developing that supports the insight. We call it samadhi. It has both a passive quality that sort of uncovering this very natural, unstoppable knowing of the mind, right? Unless you're really distracted, the knowing of the mind that knowing function of the mind, consciousness, is just going to know whatever shows up. In a sense, it's like a mirror that just is going to reflect whatever's right in front of the mirror. So if hearing is being known, it just does. It just knows the hearing. If seeing is being known, it knows the seeing. If thinking is being known, it knows the thinking. But there's a, another part of this wisdom awareness dynamic that's so transforming that supports these seismic shifts that we call insight or vipassana. And that active part is really what we mean by wisdom. It's that discerning part of awareness. So it's not just passively knowing or reflecting that it's like this, but in the knowing it's like this, this, there's a discernment that's not getting confused 
by perception. Because like right now, we see, right? Our eyes are open. Most of our eyes are open. So we see the room. And then the perception immediately comes in. I'm at common ground. Right? And then right with that perception, there are other perceptions. It's night. It's Sunday night. I got to go to work tomorrow. So kind of a small crowd tonight or, you know, whatever the perceptions might be, that just happens, right? There's the scene and then there's perception. And then the perception is very seductive. And so pretty soon we stop seeing. We're not aware that this is a visual form and we're with the concept. It's common ground. These are the people here tonight or whatever the concepts are, the thoughts are. So the discerning process is not getting, like, discernment, that active part of the mind is not getting confused by any thoughts or ideas you have about the experience. You're not against the ideas. You're not pushing the ideas away. You're not confused by the ideas. You're just letting the ideas be ideas, thoughts are thoughts, seeing is seeing, hearing is hearing, sensations are just sensations. So the discerning part is is that active part of the mind that's not acting out habit energy because it recognizes like the tendency to get caught in the thought and to proliferate around it. That's just a habit. It's not confused by the habit. It's not needing to get rid of the habit. It's just seeing that's just a habit and it's just seeing and thinking and hearing and sensing the sensations. It's keeping it really simple immediate, and not confused by the discursive activity of thought. It's there because of habit energy. We're not going to immediately or even in the long term get rid of all the, the momentum towards thought. And we don't need to demonize thinking. A lot of people equate meditation with you know, pathologizing thinking. If only I didn't think, Right? It's almost like saying, if only I weren't alive, I'd be free. You know, if only I weren't here. So it's not, that's a a kind of nihilism that the Buddha, his first Dharma talk the Buddha gave after his proverbial awakening under the Bodhi tree, you know, and he found this group of five Dharma friends of his and convinced them that he had something to say, that he had a a real awakening. And one of the first things out of his mouth is first that something they all knew that spending your life trying to have nice sense experience doesn't really lead to any real happiness. But he also said any kind of nihilism, any kind of rejection of life also doesn't lead to happiness. So this is important, like in terms of where the practice leads or uh, turns the direction it turns us toward. So, Again, the the main characteristic of wisdom is this active part of the mind that is actively not getting confused by our perceptions of what's going on. We're still going to have perceptions. We're going to recognize this conceptually, like in terms of the story, the kind of concept, uh, the consensual reality that we all sort of share. We're always going to be aware of it. So when you when you pr- your practice is really going well, you're still going to be able to have conversations with people. This is actually a good sign. Like to be deep in meditation or deep in your reflection, your Dharma reflection, and then somebody comes by and asks for directions. 
the seamlessness, the nimbleness of your mind is a sign of health in your meditation practice. If you're upset or if you think that that person is interrupting something, you're still a beginner, right? Because the idea that anything can interrupt our practice has, we're still living in the world of good and bad. You know, not being interrupted is good, being interrupted is bad. Somebody sneezing in the middle of the sit or somebody's cell phone going off. I mean, it's still good to shut your cell phone off when you come to Common Ground. But if a new person forgets to do that and it goes off, to get upset is a really important teacher for us. Like, oh, that's interesting. You know, there's just a sound and now there's all this activity of being upset and judgment. Well, that's really unfortunate that that sound is the cause, or is it the cause? Like, what's the cause for the suffering? You know, it's not the sound of the cell phone that's the cause for the suffering. It's the mind that doesn't like it, or the mind that thinks it shouldn't be happening. So, we have this active part, discerning. And then the function, like what that discerning does is, and it's called the function, right, in terms of the technical definition of wisdom, is this quality or this um, reality of illumination. And one of the images that's used in the tradition goes way back, I think even to the time of the Buddha, maybe even he used this image of a room that's been boarded up for a long time, maybe even decades. All the windows, all the doors boarded, boarded up, no light getting in at all. And then if somebody were to appear in that room and light a candle or take the boards off the windows, then no matter how long it's been dark, no matter how dark it's been, the light would immediately illuminate the space. And this is the thing about wisdom. When the mind, no matter how long you've been obsessing, caught or lost in thought, when the mind no longer is confused by thought, doesn't mean that thought's gone, but it's no longer identifying with the thought, being swept away or proliferating one thought to the next, but just understands it's just thought being known. Then it's like the Dhamma, we say, or the Dharma, the way it is, that's what Dharma means, the way it is is illuminated, and it doesn't matter if it's never been illuminated before, or it's been years since it's been illuminated, but the way it is, the underlying nature of things, is now illuminated. It doesn't like take time for it to be illuminated. As soon as the mind penetrates or cuts through or drops its identification with thought, being swept away, identified, attached, clinging to thought, clinging to its reactive patterns, then the underlying nature comes into view. So they say the function of wisdom is this illuminating process. The characteristic is penetrating through and the purpose, you could say, or the function is for things the way it is or the underlying nature. The word we use is dharma or dhamma is the Pali and dharma is the Sanskrit equivalent. 
You often hear the word Dharma more than Dhamma. Dhamma comes out of the Theravada tradition of Buddhism, which is the one that common ground comes out of. The kind of Buddhism you find in Thailand and Burma, Sri Lanka, Cambodia and Laos. So here at the center we often use the word Dhamma, but it's the same as Dharma. So the underlying nature is revealed. And then the manifestation or the expression of that illumination is non-confusion. And so we can do a little experiment. You know, when we do something simple, and you may not even need to move your hand, but whatever your hand is touching or if it's not touching anything, just make contact with one of your hands. You can even make it specific so it's just like one finger touching, making contact. And practice tuning in to that like your index finger on your right hand, making contact. Really tune in to that touch, that pressure, that contact, or wherever on your hand. And you got to practice giving yourself to that experiencing wholeheartedly, 100%, as if it's the only relevant thing in this moment. And to the degree that we're intimate with that experience of touching, pressure, whatever, there's really no doubt, no confusion in the mind. If I ask you, you know, who should we vote for for president, or what are we going to do about global warming, or what are we going to do about the sort of systemic injustices around race, around class and income, those things can be confusing. Or, you know, should I date somebody or not? Or, you know, should I swim for my exercise or walk? I mean, virtually everything else is confusing. But when we show up to walking, when we show up to seeing, hearing, touching, when we show up to experiencing moment by moment in this non-conceptual, non-discursive way, doubt goes away, confusion goes away. So like even here, like in a broader sense, so beyond just the specific experience of touch or contact, just the experience of being here now, not who you think you are here and now, but when the wisdom penetrates beyond the idea of you being here now, and it's just seeing, hearing, touching, thinking, just the components that are being known. Is there any confusion, any problem, anything that needs to be figured out? So this is the manifestate, or this is the um, expression or manifestation of wisdom is non-confusion. Doubt leaves the mind. So the characteristic is penetrated through the concepts the proliferation of the thinking mind into, you could say, non-conceptual, direct, immediate recognition that it's like this, this is being known. And then that immediately illuminates Dhamma, the way it is, the underlying nature, and I'll talk about that probably next week. And then what... What, you, what one notices is the absence of doubt. Sometimes people talk about this in, in a sense of wholeness, right? Because 
the experience of having a lot of doubt or being caught in confusion or struggling to figure out, like, am I doing it right? Am I better than other people at this? Any of that kind of thinking fragments our experience. You know, fragments it in terms of me and you or good and bad. All of these different dualistic notions that we live with most of each day, right? Almost all the time we're in that dualistic world of me and you, good and bad, this and that. But when there's that discerning process cutting through concepts into things as they are, the Dhamma, the way it is, is is illuminated, non-confusion leaves, then the mind is not fragmented. There's no confusion. And because of that, there's a, a pleasant, it's a sort of a surprisingly pleasant feeling of non-fragmentation or wholeness or a kind of a sense that everything belongs or everything is as it should be. Even if the immediate reality is unpleasant, there's a non-confusion about that. Like, yeah, and it it's belongs or it's supposed to be this way. It's not like you want it to be this way or anybody wants it to be this way. But the mind isn't, isn't constructing an idea that I know better than nature. It's like you're here now at Common Ground. And so if there's a lot of wisdom present right now, there's not this second guessing like, you know, I shouldn't have come. Because it's perfect that you're here. I know it sounds like a New Age cliche to say it that way. But given everything at play, of course, I'm here, you're here, the talk is like this, your understanding of the talk is like this, the temperature in the room is like this, the sensations in the body. It's like, now, conceptually, going back to what I said at the beginning, like that's a bit of information I'm giving you right now, that everything's always the way it should be, right? Now, if you keep reflecting on that information in terms of your actual experience, you might get the insight in, a, in an instant where there's that seismic shift and you directly immediate, re, immediately realize it is the way it's supposed to be. But not that idea, it is the way it's supposed to be. That idea comes later. First is the immediate direct recognition of like the perfection of the way it is or the, that everything belongs or the absence of the mind struggling with what's going on. So this is an aspect of wisdom, this sense of non-confusion. No doubt. No struggle. The mind's relationship to the way it is is seamless. There's no reverberation. There's no trace. Like So we say, like in terms of a hypothetical fully enlightened being, they're not creating any karma. So like in your own moments of relative wisdom, then in that moment, you're not creating any karma, meaning the mind, the activity of the mind, isn't setting anything in motion that will then have to act itself out. So you could say, again, it sounds like a New Age cliche, it's just nature happening, right? Because self-centered intention 
not only is he immediately stressful, like really trying to get it, or really trying to get concentrated, or really trying to get rid of the judging mind, you know, we have a lot of self-centered intentions in our meditation practice where we think we're practicing, but basically we're trying to control our experience. We're a self trying to make our experience better. And if you're lucky, you'll notice that's really stressful and you'll, you'll find a different way to practice because that, that way of practicing is stressful. And so when we're really practicing and we've got some momentum and we're discerning, we're penetrating the conceptual reality and we're connecting, illuminating the way it is, and we're realizing moments of non-confusion, then we feel this freedom of everything being the way it should be, this seamlessness, this wholeness, no problem. doesn't mean the moment is perfect from a self-point of view. It just means in this moment, the mind isn't constructing an idea that it should be different than it is. And so the mind is free of that kind of constructing that kind of cognitive activity. It isn't fragmenting the experience. So in that way, no karma is being created. And then we get a taste of freedom. Oh, this is what the Buddha was pointing to. This is what he's talking about. Right? And that in, then, then a lot of energy comes up. Right? Because more than anything, what generates energy... I mean, normal, like feeling enlivened, feeling bright, feeling confident, is having a sense of purpose, right? And, you know, what's the most depressing thing in the world? Not having a sense of purpose, not seeing any point to getting up, to making effort, right? That is really depressing. When we, in a moment or in moments or days even, right, when we can't see some place to pour our life energy that has meaning, that has purpose, then we call that being really depressed or despairing. But when we all of a sudden understand, oh, that's what the Buddha was talking about, that there's a way to have a mind and body, to be a human being and to be free and engaged and alive, we go, oh, that's what I should do with this life. Cultivate that way of being. And that's what the whole path is about. Now the last part of this technical definition, and then I'll open it up for discussion. So we have the characteristic is this penetrating quality. The function or the expression, or the, uh, yeah, the function of it is to illuminate so the mind has insight, sees the way that it is, the underlying nature, and then the expression of that illumination is non-confusion, non-doubt, that sense of wholeness, the sense of everything belongs, everything is as it should be, no karma, no, no, uh, nothing set in motion that then has to play itself out. And then the cause for wisdom. What is the proximate cause? What supports the arising of that all those pieces, the penetrating, the illumination, the non-confusion. And it's not like trying hard to be wise isn't the cause. Because wisdom, right, in the, the Buddha's understanding from his own experience, wisdom, like absolutely everything else, 
is the activity of nature. Wisdom is not something you or anybody does, right? Wisdom, like that awareness too. Are we doing the awareness? I mean, we can imagine that I'm being aware and it's kind of the convention, like, oh yeah, I was really aware. But when we actually look at the experience of being aware, it doesn't make sense to say, I'm being aware. There's just awareness. There's knowing happening. And the same with wisdom. So as a natural process, what needs to be there for that discerning and illuminating process to happen, for the experience of non-confusion to happen? What needs to be there? And you could say, you know, well, what needs to be there? I mean, the, the right answer is like, well, you need to be concentrated or the mind needs to be stable. But basically, the mind needs to be free of obscurations. So whatever distortions, and I'll talk about this next week, the distortions of the mind, but as soon as the mind is free of distortion, instability, then that penetrating quality, that illuminating quality and the experience of non-confusion is there. So what, what sets in motion that stability or that Absence of distortion, absence of instability. You know, like a little thought flitters through my mind. Tomorrow's Monday. And if I just let that thought go, there's very little disturbance in my mind. But if that thought, that little thought flitters through, it's tomorrow's Monday. I have practice meetings in the morning starting at 8. I wonder if anybody signed up for those. Or, and then on and on from there then all of a sudden those ideas and the worry and the emotions associated with those ideas, they're like waves on a clear, flat lake. So it loses its transparency, like the mind is not clear anymore because of those reverberations, because of that, those obscurations. So concentration practice, samadhi practice, the art of settling, the art of stabilizing the mind is the cause for wisdom. We don't have to try to be wise. We have to cultivate a value, the value of being calm, being settled. And you know, in our culture, we sort of, I mean, we do a little bit, but, but maybe more even, we, we value kind of being hyped and being jazzed and being you know, on fire, and we have all these sort of things that we like. People have energy, and literally, I mean, there's very few people, maybe a couple of you, you know, were addicted to things that, I mean, you may not be addicted to caffeine in your own particular vehicle, you know, whether it's Mountain Dew or green tea, or, but there's usually some stimulant that we use to get us through the day, whether it's chocolate or provocative news or gossiping with your friend or uh, sexual play, you know, like flirting. But if, if it isn't one thing, it's usually another to help us feel more alive, right? Instead of finding that natural energy that brightens the mind which is really a basic respect for the life that is being lived here. Like, why can't our own compassion and care 
Because it's so easy not only to set in motion suffering for ourselves, but it is so easy for us to set in motion suffering for others. I mean, the reality is we are all complicit in the suffering, all the suffering of oppression and injustice, racial injustice. We're all part of that because we're just not showing up. We're just not awake. You know, in all the little and big ways that we close our heart, we turn away, we think it's not our responsibility. So if we just start to wake up, the world is so amazingly beautiful and amazingly messy. The You won't need caffeine anymore. You know why we need caffeine and all the other types of stimulants is we're so exhausted and shutting down. It's like working so hard to be disconnected is deadening. So then we turn to other sources, you know, like the pornography and the, you know, all the hate the, on, on the internet and you know, all the kind of provocative stuff. And whether you, your sort of addiction is more explicit or, you know, just the sort of the normal provocative things that are on more ordinary news sites, but everybody's mind is being provoked one way or another, stimulated one way or another, whatever it might be. You know, whether your turn on is reading the next article about Donald Trump being a fool or something else, we're getting juice somewhere. And it's because we don't feel connected with how amazingly wild and beautiful and how much suffering there is right here in our own life all around us. So when we do that, then that energy, then we can realize that the only thing a compassionate human being will do is want to stabilize in the middle of this amazing moment because it's the only way to be skillful. As soon as the mind moves in the direction of being stable, we just start seeing that our response is more skillful. And as soon as we start losing the stability, we see the probability of acting in a way that's unskillful just skyrockets, right? When we look at all the moments we've been unskillful, you can always correlate the mind not being stable in that moment. That's why the unskillful response looked right. Because the mind was obscured. The clarity in the mind was obscured. The mind was unstable. It wasn't seeing what was at play, what was going on. It was lost in thought or it was caught in a view that skewed what was going on. So we want to find ourselves in the middle so that we have the energy. Because if we're not in the middle, if we're not intimate, we're going to be dependent on other stimulants. But if we're right in the middle, and you'll see this too, like a lot of people have trouble with sleepiness in practice. We all do. Even very experienced meditators have trouble with sleepiness. But one of the things you learn, the more you practice is, there's a place we get when we're actually connecting with experience. And one of the telltale signs is there's a lot of energy in the mind. The mind gets bright. And when we're not really connected, then there's sinking mind. One of the very interesting things about being in a longer retreat or more in a kind of... in in a groove in your practice, is you can get really bright, really steady, mind gets really clear. 
And then as soon as the mind starts to proliferate and gets disconnected, it immediately implodes. Because the subtlety of that presence required a lot of energy to stay with it. And as soon as the mind kind of goes into thought, it loses its connection with the present moment, which was what was energizing the mind. And you can go right from being perfectly in balance, very bright, to being in some falling asleep or being in a trance state. And then you really realize that the energy in life comes from being intimate, connected. So there's a real connection between samadhi, this proximate cause for wisdom, and being intimate. We need to be intimate and not compulsively feeling we need to do something. So that's the stability part. Being intimate is enough. Being present is enough. Relaxing there. So it's a path of understanding. That's why we use things like whole body awareness as we breathe in, whole body awareness as we breathe out. Right? We're practicing being right in the middle. We're practicing being enlivened by the activity of the body and then expanding to include the activity of the mind. Right in the middle, but relaxed, trusting, letting things happen. And then in that context, the mind penetrates, the underlying nature is illuminated, and the realization of non-confusion, non-doubt, wholeness arises over and over again. And this is really the process of wisdom. So I'll leave it here. It'd be nice to hear from some of you. I'm sure you've learned a lot, have had experiences of wisdom showing up in your life, both in your sits and just informally during the day that relates to some of the things I said tonight or any questions that you might have. And Alan has the mic, so just point it right at your mouth. Just raise your hand and Alan will pass you the mic. So what comes to mind? Questions or comments from your own practice? Joe? Yeah, I really liked what you talked about with clinging and the caffeine um, stimulation. And So I gave up caffeine about three weeks ago, and I didn't realize how much I was dependent on it, and then dependent, too, on media and TV and... Um, sometimes I take trips. I go to wilderness adventures or recently went to the Grand Canyon. And and then I learned something about the natural experience and about getting con- uh, connected with nature. And then I come back and I, I do a lot of mindfulness. I um, really try to change sort of some of those maladaptive patterns that I've been, I've been caught in. And it, it seems to help my practice and it's just a real sense of... Um, I don't know, like even coming back here, I've been absent for quite a while, and just those sort of um, shifts in being able to change my perspective. And like I wanted to go see Mission Impossible at the Riverview Theater recently, and I thought, well, okay, but I'll leave or I'll get stimulated by all the gunfire, the, the audio, and can it be okay just to let it go? And and that's what I've been working with. and um, But it doesn't mean I can't have a slice of cheese pizza. But I'm like, I don't know. I'm not, I don't go to Burger King any longer. And it just, so, um, 
So I really connected and liked what you had to say about that, about the caffeine in particular. Um, I don't drink alcohol anymore. I gave it up 20 years ago. And the caffeine was a real crutch. It gave me something to feel good. Mm-hmm. And it's the same with the news, too. I On my phone, I'm on the New York Times. And I just, yeah, I like need to be stimulated by things. And then... When I'm not, like I chose quitting watching NFL football. So my place now, my flat, is real quiet. I turn the TV off, and it just feels better. And so, Yeah, yeah thanks for sharing, Joe. Yeah. Yeah. It's such a powerful adventure to see these things in our life and in our culture as skillful means to practice with. So, so we use them for learning, not for addiction or for dependence but well yeah let's learn like one example of that is when joseph goldstein's teacher menindaji came from india to ims in massachusetts where there's a retreat center there and uh he wanted joseph to rent a bunch of uh the worst horror films because he wanted to watch them to see like see what that would would be like to watch those films so if you if you had gone to mission impossible or maybe you did you know, to not say, well, I'll practice afterward, but even in the middle, like, why can't I be seeing what I'm seeing but not creating any karma, right? Not set anything in motion so that there's unfinished business that needs to then unwind at the end of the film. But maybe I can be digesting or processing it all the way through. That way we don't, because sometimes practitioners understandably so, they get averse to intensity because they feel like it's going to rattle their practice. And so initially, that's probably wise to sort of simplify your life. But then once you have some momentum and when intensity shows up, don't be afraid of it. See it as a teacher. Okay, can I embrace this intensity, whatever it is. A friend asks you to go see Mission Impossible, you're getting divorced, or whatever it might be. Can we show up fearlessly as much as we can? And whatever needs to move, whatever reactions, just to keep seeing it for what it is and not have to get tight, not have to go back into denial or get lost in you know, some distraction. Thanks, Joe. Nice to see you back. Other thoughts? My name's Ethan, and I've only recently started coming here, but... Maybe a little closer, Ethan. Oh, uh, sorry. Um, My name's Ethan. I've only recently come here, um, but it strikes me... I'm a PhD student at the University of Minnesota, and I'm in research, and our job is sort of to understand nature. (laughs) Um, And it strikes me as kind of interesting that the people I'm surrounded with there's this thing in psychology called a construct (laughs) and constructs are things that we believe manifest in nature. Um, But the way we approach it is so not like it is explained here. Um, And we really try to force the constructs that we study and make them manifest. And it seems the opposite of being sort of, at peace with the way things are. And I just, that's blowing my mind right now. Yeah. So, uh, 
it's very yeah it totally is <laughs> we're, we're we're seeking insight all the time yet we do things that totally prevent insight from occurring um and it's really weird and i'm Quite why is that happening and part of the problem is that in science you know in western science at least um they operate in this delusion of objectivity and in buddhist practice we appreciate the reality of subjectivity it's only subjective and so we don't pretend there's objectivity so the the work we do you know this all that the talk tonight on wisdom it's we're talking about this in terms of subjective reality we're having insight into subjective reality which is the only reality there is so we don't even need to call it subjective reality all reality is subjective and the reason i mean science western science clearly it uh it allows us to function in the world but it doesn't really shift like even though technologically we're quite different than we were a couple hundred years ago in terms of greed anger and delusion it's not that different you know in terms of the actual amount of suffering and oppression the means of oppression is different the sort of expressions of what we would call success or failure is different but the basic dynamic of being a human being is hasn't shifted so much because we're not appreciating that this is a subjective reality and so from a subjective point of view what's relevant not how to make a better cell phone from a subjective point of view the only thing that's relevant is suffering and the end of suffering not technological improvements or whether there's life in other planets what's really interesting from a subjective point of view is why is everything so tight or why is everything so light and easy right now like how did that come to be or how did i get tied up in knots how did i get out of you know i was so tight this morning but now things are so light and easy that's what's relevant when we appreciate that this is always a subjective experience and then when we relate to each other the where compassion comes from isn't from some idea some objective idea but it's this from this appreciation of our subjective vulnerability our subjective suffering our subjective release from suffering that everybody else's subjective experience is probably pretty much the same they don't want to be a subjectively experiencing suffering they're interested in that subjective experience of happiness or the release so really that sub- deepening that subjective understanding is what connects us to everybody because that's what we share we share this subjective reality and thanks for sharing that it's 8:30 so we have to leave it here i just take a moment let go of the words just enough time to take one or two breaths together feeling at home in the body and mind reality of this subjective experience here and realizing of course there have been countless women and men busy lives their own confused confusing subjective experience and 
cultivating this wisdom, clarity, this commitment to seeing things as they are. And through that process of wisdom came to have more understanding, more skill, more compassion, and set in motion the causes for happiness around them and in their own life. And then now we're the recipient of this ocean, this great river of wisdom that's been passed down generation by generation. And like it or not, it's our turn in our busy lives, complicated lives, confusing lives, to do the best we can to actually uncover the causes for happiness and abandon the causes for suffering and to be role models for happiness and freedom from suffering in the world. So may this be so. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.